You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening, everyone. Before we begin this evening's proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of country. Can everyone hear me? Great. Okay, well, my remit this evening, as I take it, is to soften you up a bit before the adults take the stage My name is Killian, and as you can tell from my accent, I was born in Manchester, England, to Irish parents who relocated to the Great Plains of North America when I was small. I've written something about jellyfish, which I'll read. There are not many jellies in Nebraska. Those freshwater ones one sees in flooded sand and gravel pits are, I'm told, Chinese, migrants from the Yangtze Basin, diaphanous cosmopolites swimming economically through the belly of Trump country. (laughs) Migrants like my family, who arrived Omaha in 86 when I was two. Every other year or so in summertime, the six of us would catch a plane to Chicago, and another one to Shannon. Then we'd stop for breakfast, it being early, with relations in Limerick, and then on south to Cork, a damp, dim townhouse belonging to my dad's folks. Those Julys in Ireland were where the ocean lived for my sisters and for me. At beaches and from borrowed boats, hermit crabs and bladder rack, basking sharks and mackerel hailed us, awkward strangers, to our North Atlantic home place. And jellyfish. Joanna is my older sister, and she tells me that when young, with cousins down in Waterford, she walked a strand till its cool sand became a squishy sting. Or, she wrote me lately, a psychiatrist and mother now to three Scottish, Indian, Irish, Nebraskan girls. Or, she wrote, I engendered the sensation from the novelty of it. What a phrase and what a thought, I think, to have craved a jelly's touch so much as to invent it. My own desire did impress an image in my memory. I lack my sister's language, but I sense a kinship when I see some buckets, rods, a troubled sea, my godfather, two jagged rocks, spoomy surf, and little me, a calm day's fishing down West Cork. From atop some cliff, mounting skyward in the recollecting, and in the middle distance, to the left, An orange shape asserts itself, a clump 
and an enfolding, a surging and a trailing, a life or lives that operate at rhythms mine and not. A lion's mane? Okay. Sheer fabrication? Sure. In any case, it's swimming economically through memory of family seas, a symbol. Of what? A symbol of jellyfish. 25 years later, and I'm hanging at five meters under surface of that spoomy Celtic sea. My friend looks at his dive watch, and I'm swimming. I'm staring at a swimming compass, all grace and cream and lace, and knowing this is the most beautiful motion I have ever seen. After popping up, we motor back to the marina, and that night I'm dreaming about ancient muscles, memory muscles, compass jellyfish. This spray of words is uneconomical, an admiring, if not a getting, of such buoyancy. I want to swim at will through viscous reminiscence and pretend that that's the element for me. Of jellyfish, my father said a sweet and awful thing, that they heralded good weather and that they terrified him. Thanks. Thanks, Killian. I can relate to that. I've seen lots of lions, mains, jellyfish. And in fact, this year with global warming, people are not swimming in Galway Bay because there's too many lions, Jane's jellyfish. It's re they really are there. Anyway, I'd like to thank Sydney Ideas for uh, getting us all together. And of course, the uh, Sydney Environment Institute, which has, um, has got all the ideas and the brains behind getting this, uh, this organized. We've just heard from Killian Quigley. Killian is a, a postdoc in the SCI, the Sydney Environment Institute. And as you can imagine, he's got some uh, terrific insights on aesthetics in the sea. We've just heard that. So he's writing, uh, he's a co-editor of Aesthetics in the Undersea. For, that's going to be coming out in November. And he's got a book manuscript that's just about uh, underway, and it's called Submarine Poetics. So thanks, Killian. So now our first speaker uh, today is uh, Associate Professor William Figuera from the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney. Uh, Will, we call him Professor Fish and Professor Corals. He uh, has worked from uh, temperate to tropical uh, areas and he's, um, uh, he's currently the director of One Tree Island Research Station, which is a very important facility that the University of Sydney operates on the, in the southern Great Barrier Reef. He's just also just finished his session as president of the Australian Marine Science Association, and that's a very important role to communicate science at all levels, from the community to the politicians in Canberra. Uh, Will's research area is climate change. Uh, he does a lot of work on species on the move, which is uh, species, if you've seen uh, Nemo and the jellyfish were there too, with, uh, with, the, with the turtle, you might recall going head south with the EAC, uh, so uh, Will um, uh, investigates the other species that move down. 
And he did have a jellyfish moment, because I've asked him for a jellyfish moment. And he said he was out there in the, in the ocean on the big ship, uh, the Southern Surveyor, and they were trawling and, I mean, and doing plankton toes for larvae. And they ended up, instead of getting a bunch of larvae, they got tons of jellyfish. And it was termed trawling buckets of snot. And, that, and that's a quote. Anyway, on that note, I'll let Will have a, have a chat. Thank you. Thanks, Maria. Yes, buckets of snot. That was a nice trip. Didn't get a lot of fish, but we certainly learned a lot about salps and other gelatinous organisms. Um, so my, my role today is I, I enthusiastically said yes when asked to do this and then realized later that uh, jellyfish aren't fish. Apparently they're invertebrates, so I may have jumped too quickly. Um, I've had a few jellyfish in, in encounters, including getting stung while swimming uh, up at one tree. Not badly, thank God. But my, my role today then is to provide a bit of context for the discussion about jellyfish, what they're up to, where they might be going, by talking a little bit more broadly about the global redistribution of marine biota, I suppose. Uh, so with that as context, uh, first of all, there's a lot of effects of climate change in the seas. We're seeing sea level rise, changes in our freshwater flow and storm activity. We're seeing ocean acidification. Um, but probably the main stressor that I'll be talking about today, because it is one of the more pervasive and one of the more immediate, is the increases in ocean temperature that we are seeing. Um, so it's getting hotter. That's probably not a surprise to most people in the room. You look at the lots of ways of looking at this sort of stuff. Here's just a few examples of um, temporal series of, of global average air temperatures, as well as this cool diagram showing you month by month how things are changing. And if nothing changed, we wouldn't be able to see anything on that graph. And you can certainly see the, the rapid acceleration of warming, especially since the late 90s and early 2000s. So it's getting warmer and some weird stuff is happening. Um, weird in a lot of contexts uh, and important in a lot of contexts. And these are just a few examples. So we're seeing mangroves replacing salt marsh all around the world, which is in fact changing local rates of carbon sequestration, which is obviously a pretty important topic for us now when we've got lots of carbon dioxide that we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with. We've got crabs invading the con continental shelves of the Antarctic and um, having a pretty good way with endemic species who aren't adapted to this sort of crushing predator. There's some positives that are coming out of this, um, sort of. Uh, we've seen mackerel, um, mackerel populations exploding as they move into the Icelandic waters. Catch has gone up about 70-fold over four years, uh, but this has brought a whole lot of user conflict into the fishery. And then more locally, we've seen um, one of our more um, um, stellar examples, which I'll raise again in a minute, is the invading urchins into southeast Australia, sort of Tasmanian waters, eating all the kelp, which is home to a lot of things, including many recreationally important species. So that's, that's a few examples, but of course scientists have tried to look more, more broadly and more objectively, is, is there global patterns, and this is one particular study uh, that's done a very good job of that, looking at all sorts of responses in biota, things that you might expect animals to do in response to climate change. And these are changes in their distribution, phenology, which is the change in the timing of the reproduction, um, changes in abundance, community structure, calcification rates, or other demographic rates like mortality and growth rates. 
looked across a whole range of biota globally from a bunch of different studies and got about 1,700 different responses, and over 80% of them are consistent. The responses are consistent with what you'd expect um, from a climate change, if climate change is the driver. Um, one of the really important points that came out of this study was that, um, that the range of expansion in marine systems is about 10 times faster than you see in terrestrial systems. Part of the reason is because marine organisms tend to occupy the full range of their thermal habitat, which is not typically seen in terrestrial systems. So when there is a change, it, it often necessitates a, a very rapid move. I'll come back to the, some of the other reasons later. Then within the Australian context, the story is no different. It's getting warmer here. Sorry, I'm too loud. I'm kind of a human PA system, so I'm trying to talk quietly right now. Um, <laughs> too many Americans in the room, huh? <laughs> Um, the uh, uh, context is the same in Australia, so we're seeing rapid uh, rises in temperature. One of the unique things, especially uh, about the point on the planet that we're sitting at now, is it has been identified as a bit of a global hotspot um, for warming, especially southeast Australia. And just to provide another way of looking at that, uh, this is some average sea surface temperature anomaly data, so differences in sea surface temperature every year from a long-term average. And you can see what we saw before since the 20s, Temperatures are rising globally. Um, if you look at some more local work, I've sort of overlaid same data series pulled for One Tree Island, which is on the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef, uh, where we have our field station, and then Sydney in blue. And you can see the rate of increase is much steeper. And this is characteristic as you move further to the south. If I had done Tasmania, you'd see an even steeper increase. And of course, then this is driving range shifts in organisms within our local Australian context. And here's a few examples. Um, there's some data from that same um, Poliskensky study of 80 species, about half of them had shifts consistent with climate change. Um, more compelling is probably the um, 40, 56 different fish species that have had some change in their distribution. 45 of those 56 have shifted in a direction that's consistent with a climate change uh, with a warming signature. So. Um, Greta Pessel and colleagues have done some really, really good work recently to highlight the effects, and we always think about the biota, of course, are moving, but there are much broader ramifications for this. Some of these I've highlighted before. There's lots of reasons to worry about the shifts in the distribution of organisms as it relates to selfishly human welfare. Um, food security. We fish a lot of these species, and when they're moving out from under our fisheries, that causes a problem. In some cases, as in tuna in the Western Pacific, for certain areas, this could actually be a good thing. They might have more tuna. That means other areas, however, are going to have less. Um, there's big impacts on tourism and recreation, specific to jellyfish. We're seeing bays, examples of bays in the Mediterranean where jellyfish have become so abundant, like Galway Bay that you just pointed out. I didn't know that's another example where um, sort of various recreational activities now are no longer happening. So all the dollars that would be associated with those sort of things would go away. Got our urchins in Southeast Australia affecting some of the uh, recreationally important fisheries. And then there's some really big scale stuff that you would never have expected like um, shifts in plankton community in the subpolar North Atlantic that are actually driving substantial changes in the, in the carbon dioxide cycling. And if you know nothing else about uh, sort of ocean atmospheric interactions, that carbon dioxide cycling between ocean and atmospheres is absolutely critical with the sort of carbon budget and therefore heat budgets of the planet. So anything that tinkers with that is going to have big impacts. So what are we going to see in the future? That's obviously a big question. Um, well, we can, we can do things like look at models. Uh, this is an example of using some, an ensemble of models, in this case six, and seeing if they all agree on where the hot spots of warming are going to be. 
some of the conclusions from this are uh, certainly the northern hemisphere in the western Atlantic. There's quite a few areas that are predicted very consistently to warm dramatically. A lot more, less certainty in the southern hemisphere. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen in a lot of areas, but some places we do know, once again, southeast Australia is showing up as certainly within the context of the southern hemisphere, the most certain place we would expect warming to happen based on the sort of uh, future modeling projections. Um, so what is that going to do to the biota? There's been, been, been a bit of work on this lately, trying to understand how can we predict who's going to move and how far they're going to move. One, one thing we've, we've realized is we can actually quantify the rate at which warming, literally the rate over, over so sort of the distance, you know, time over distance, oh, sorry, distance over time, so the speed with which warming is happening and the direction it's happening. And it turns out when you do that, which is what's expressed here, the thermal envelope shift in degrees per year or in meters per year, you get a relatively good um, relationship with the uh, shift in the distribution of the animals themselves. So that's perhaps a very good predictive power. So where we can identify these areas, this is known as climate velocities. We can use climate velocities to figure out um, exactly who's going to move where. But another important lesson is, is it's not all about the climate velocities. right? The characteristics of the species are really important. Um, some general conclusions that have come out of it that are probably not unexpected is that Ecological generalism promotes uh, extensions. And so by that we mean organisms that have broad diets, so they're omnivores, organisms that have relatively good swim speeds so they can move, and organisms that have relatively large latitudinal range already, meaning they can tolerate quite a range of thermal habitats, are more likely to shift. So we can use all this sort of information to make some predictions. Sorry, my phone's gone to sleep. All right, so I just wanted to finish with a little bit, last couple minutes, about why is it happening so fast and some, some more, again, regional context with regards to my own work. One of the main reasons is that most marine organisms, um, even where the adult may never move its entire life, will have a larval phase, a pelagic larval phase, and during that phase, that, um, that, little, that little beast can move over very great distances. Sometimes they don't move at all, but they certainly have the capacity to move thousands of kilometers. You combine that with powerful ocean currents and you can see you've got a recipe for long distance connectivity. This phenomenon is especially evident in situations where you have very powerful poleward flowing boundary currents. This is a characteristic of oceanography. These currents then can carry tropical larvae in, into very high latitudes and temperate regions. And so wherever you see these, um, these um, currents, you tend to see tropical fish showing up all through the summer at very high latitudes, well outside the range you would normally see them. This particular study by my colleague Adriana was highlighting the fact that many of these, when they're herbivores, have a big impact on the environment, uh, on the local environment where they settle because they start eating all the kelp and the systems aren't necessarily um, evolved, if you will, to deal with uh, that level of fish omnivory or fish herbivory. So in Sydney, uh, myself and my colleague Dave Booth, who's here somewhere in the room, I think, um, have been, sorry, this term has sort of become known as tropicalization. And myself and Dave have been looking at this for some time in Sydney. And, you know, you get this beautiful wave of color from the north. And these, most of these pictures would be from Cabbage Tree Bay or Surrounds off Manly. So every summer you go out and you see this happening. So we've got the mechanism to get the animals here. And this is certainly also applicable to things that fish can swim pretty well as larvae. So anything that can't swim pretty well is, uh, you know, even at greater, um, has even greater potential to be moved around. For instance, like jellyfish, just hypothetically, not related to this situation at all. Um, 
but what we've also realized, of course, is that's not the only ingredient, right? They've got to, they've got to survive once they settle. And for the tropical fish, their big bottleneck is overwinter survival. And what we've noticed, though, is as the, um, that the probability of surviving a winter, which is on this axis, for a whole mess of different taxa, uh, has a quite strong threshold temperature response. So when the average winter, in the case of mainland sites, gets above about 17 and a half degrees, suddenly all these guys start surviving over the winter. Lord Howe Island is what that is. Those, those, those ones were a little bit warmer, had a higher threshold, possibly due to warm adaptation of the species that live out there because the water's a bit warmer. But the key message here is, of course, as you may have guessed, the oceans are getting warmer. So there's a threshold. Even if we assume it's static, the oceans are getting warmer. These are some plots from one tree island all the way down to Marimbula. Again, you can see the rate of acceleration increases to the south. You can use this data to ask the frequency with which a survivalable winter, which in the case of the mainland was 17 and a half degrees, would occur. And as you might imagine, that's stepping up through time. Port Stevens had no survivable winters in the 20s, now 100% of them are survivable. Sydney is currently sitting at about 40 or 50% of the winters that are survivable. And if you're bold enough to put a line through that, it's gonna hit 100% in 2080. I think it was actually 2070 and I added 10 years to make sure I was dead um, so, that, so that nobody could call me out when it doesn't happen. So why won't it happen? There's, there's a lot we still don't know about what's limiting the distribution of these organisms and their range expanding capacity. We don't know the extent of their phenotypic plasticity. So that's their ability to alter their performance in response to environmental conditions within a generation. So on the fly, if you will. So we're learning about that. We also don't know the sort of relative importance compared to plasticity of adaptation. So that's genetic adaptation where these populations are establishing breeding populations as they move through their range. And the last, and, and I think quite important one, is this role of ecological interactions. We're smashing novel communities together in, in variable thermal environments. Uh, I think history of invasive introductions, either on purpose or by accident, has demonstrated very clearly we don't know what's going to happen in those situations, when, even when we think we do. So there's a big unknown there in terms of predator-prey outcomes, competitive outcomes. So I think that while we know a lot about what's happening and we're making predictions about what might happen, um, there's certainly a lot we don't know. But I think to conclude that we can all be pretty sure that there's definitely going to be change. Thank you. Thanks very much, Will. Great um, talk. Uh, it's my pleasure to um, invite our uh, guest speaker, Professor Mike Kingsford, uh, Professor of Marine Biology from James Cook University, to uh, give us a talk on, um, well, jellyfish behaving badly. Um, and Mike uh, has been, is, well, we used to call him uh, Professor Fish as well, because Mike has worked on fish from the Great Barrier Reef all the way through the east coast of Australia for decades. Uh, he's just about to jump in the water tomorrow at 16 degrees and do his 35th survey of the fish off of in, in, um, in uh, Botany Bay. So there's a lot of dimensions to Mike, other than what you'll hear tonight is the jellyfish. But he's been working on jellyfish for about 25 years. And it started off when, you, I don't know if you remember down in the uh, Illawarra, where all the, the blubbers, there was a lot of jelly blubbers there. 
big realm, and you see them in Sydney Harbour as well. They're quite attractive with little white spots on them. They're not, to they're not toxic or dangerous, but the Japanese like them to eat. So there was a, a, quite a move in about 20 years ago to get a jellyfish fishery established for New South Wales. I don't know where that got to, but we might hear more. Um, but, uh, so Mike has put his, practical, his knowledge of uh, jellyfish to lots of practical um, uh, solutions. So, for instance, up in Darwin, there was a, there's a place which was plagued by upside-down jellyfish. Yes, there's a type of jellyfish that lives upside-down. It's actually quite beautiful, but not so beautiful in the plague numbers. That was at the swimming hole, a very important swimming hole near Darwin, because it's one of the few places they could swim without the problems of crocs. So they had to figure out what to do. So Mike came up with a solution, and they flushed those jellyfish away, and everybody was happy. So um, uh, I'll let Mike uh, carry on and, and let us know about jellyfish behaving badly. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> OK, so this is, uh, really is all about jellyfish, this one. So we're going to talk about the, the accused in terms of the nature of jellyfishes that we might be concerned about. Um, I'll then focus on the really bad eggs, which are the cubozoans, like uh, stingers and those types of jellyfish. Uh, the segue from uh, the last talk by Will was very much about what's going to happen in the deep south, the things like climate change. So we'll talk about the possibility of uh, us bathing in Irukandji around Sydney. Um, and in doing so, it's about what do we know about their ability to disperse. And one of the themes that come out of this is that despite jellyfish not having a brain, they're actually pretty good at moving around the place. Uh, and then finally, how do we actually manage these things? Um, you tend to get centralised management for, for many types of organisms and pests that go with that. Uh, one thing I'll talk about is stakeholders actually taking control uh, and not having just a centralised type system. So here they are. Here are the, here are the jellies or jelly blubbers, as some of the ones that uh, Marie has articulated. Some of them are absolutely stunning. Uh, on the left-hand side here are the true jellyfish. This one's called Chrysaura. In fact, that's stolen straight from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, a, a really gorgeous display of them. This one on the top over here is Pelagia, which is, um, they can get quite large. Some of these true jellyfish, like the Namuri jellyfish, get up to 80 kilograms in weight. So they're absolutely enormous, some of the size of them. Their tentacles can stretch tens of metres when they're actually in the feeding position. Um, the, the one down the, the bottom right here, of course, we've all stomped on as kids. That's the... Uh, Portuguese man of war, the um, Physalia, and they can actually be quite nasty to you. And the array of uh, specimens here, these are the cubozoans, which I've talked about in more detail, which include the stinger down the bottom uh, and two Irukandji jellyfish uh, on the top there. So what makes these things jellyfish? All of these guys actually have stings, and what we have here is the, a sequence of stings. Where's this green thing? Here we go. Um, over here we have a, uh, a so-called... Um, Nidocele, which is actually the cell in which you find the stinging cell, with a combination of touch and a meaty flavour, which we all cave to quite well, this thing actually fires. There's a huge change in osmotic pressure, which fires this harpoon attitude, which happens here. And here is an extended nematocyst, where you can see the, um, the venom down the bottom here, these nasty barbs, and this is the, pretty much the injection that fires into the body of the animal uh, and administers the venom. So all of the jellyfish that I've shown in those images um, have this characteristic. So here are a few familiar ones. Here's the one that Marie mentioned before, the blubber. These are the ones that uh, the prawn fishermen around um, Sydney absolutely hate because it clogs up their nets. Um, 
these guys pretty much tingle. Here's the lion's mane over on the right-hand side here. It's a cyanea or desmonema, depending on the species. These, again, can have tentacles that stretch, uh, you know, stretch tens of metres. But look, the worst thing, you might end up with a little rash but then, and tingle a little bit, but not too bad. We've had a few of these inside our wetsuits, which is not too flash with the nematocysts. But, um, these guys can really hurt, and probably everyone in this room has had this experience in dealing with screaming children. Um, these, actually, but are not, can give you Irukandji syndrome. Irukandji is a syndrome, it's not a jellyfish, okay? It's often mistaken as actually a species, but actually um, the symptoms are something like you get hypertension, you get feelings of impending doom, uh, and a few other things that are like that, okay? So it's, there's actually about 10 different species uh, that give you these uh, lovely feelings of impending doom. Um, okay, these are the really bad eggs. The, um, this is a very spectacular picture of a Chironex fleckeri, which is the true box jellyfish. These guys will kill you, okay? If you get 3.5 metres of a tentacle of this guy, it will actually kill you based on the venom in them. The other type is Irukandji jellyfish, which are also in the box jellyfish group. Um, despite the hype you get in the newspaper, you're really unlucky to be killed by these guys, but you will get feelings of impending doom and feel very unhappy. Um, these, what's amazing about these particular organisms that uh, biologists get their kicks out of, and, and perhaps we should in terms of the, the grace with which they um, whiz around the water column, is they have fantastic eyes for a start. They have four groups of eyes, so they have 24 eyes in total. Um, and you can see over here, this, this one here is actually an eye that has pretty much a lens and can pretty much give fairly rudimentary um, images. Uh, these other eyes here are very good at picking out shadows, so Many of these things can actively hunt in and out of things like mangroves and steer around obstacles. And down the bottom here, we actually have part of the balance organ, which keeps the eye in place and it flop all over the place, as you'd expect from a jellyfish. Um, they also have, and I'll see if I can get the tech. Oops, no, that's not what I want to do. Let's get that movie working. Oops. That's not right. Can we just start that movie manually? Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. So this is showing the movie. See the little guys buzzing around the place? They're all cousins of Irukandji jellyfish. Every now and then you'll see what's called pass. Okay, there's a whole bunch of them. And they tend to be photopositive as a result of this um, phototactic response. They're pretty amazing hunters. Now the reason they have really nasty venom is not to be annoying to swimmers, is to subdue very large prey. So the box jellyfish eats quite substantially large fish. And the venom cuts in where they go from prawn larvae up to something like fish as they get much larger. So don't run into these guys. So the less endearing qualities of them, some of them are deadly. And there's actually a picture up here of venom coming out of the, the stings of one of these guys. And really, I guess, to use the current vernacular, it's a wicked problem of how we actually manage these um, particular jellyfish, and hopefully not in Sydney in the near future. Um, there's something like 50 different species of box jellyfish. All these guys up here are the Irukandji class. And you can see they have a boxy shape and four tentacles on each side. The true stinger is a, is a boxy shape, but each base of the tentacle, they have multiple tentacles coming out of that. So that distinguishes the different types of groups. All of these little characters up here, some of these are as small as your fingernail, but can really, really hurt. Um, so it, it's often purported in the literature by David Attenborough and the like that, you know, these are some of the most potent animals for their size in the uh, animal kingdom. Now, this looks slightly complicated here, but I want you to get the complexity of the life history of these characters. If you look over here, here's a Irukandji-style jellyfish, a Tripodalia. 
They have separate sexes. They give rise to these weird little things called planular larvae, which actually have eyes. Those little red things all over there are eyes. They settle on the bottom and then take up a benthic lifestyle, so a bit like a polyp or an anemone. They can crawl along the substratum. They can asexually reproduce. So one baby from a jellyfish gives rise to a whole lot of others, which means it's quite potent in terms of population expansion. Unlike many, many jellyfish, these guys actually blast off like the space shuttle, so that the entire polyp actually lifts off the bottom and starts swimming as a little baby like this guy up here. So it's just important to remember that for these populations to expand, you have to cater for the jellyfish itself and the benthic habitat of the, um, of the polyp. Okay, so what are we doing about this? The great concern, which is part of the topic of this whole session, is that if you look at North Queensland here, are these things like Irukandji and Boxies going to head on down toward uh, North Queensland, uh, Southern Queensland rather, and also New South Wales? Now, at this point in time, the Irukandji being is recorded as far south as Fraser Island, but the concern, especially in around Brisbane, is with the East Australia Current, which Will was talking about before, flowing all the way down the coast. And of course, if you look even further down the coast, here we have Byron Bay and all the way down to Sydney. So, what are the chances of them actually getting as far south as here? Now, we actually do have Cuba zones in this particular area, but they tend not to hurt you too much. There's a little guy called Caribdia rastoni, um, which is found as far south as uh, Tasmania, um, but you tend to get like a, a generous tingle as opposed to just a, a little tingle. Okay, so what determines how far these guys go? Um, it depends on currents, which we all sort of partly cross. Water quality, particularly things like salinity. Um, their mobility, how far they can swim, how far they can drift, the behaviour of them. And a point that's going to come out from the slides that follow is that mobility is part of it, but what they tend to do is a lot of these guys like staying close to home like we do. And the availability of polyp habitat. Remember, these guys have to actually settle as a baby, find a substrate which has to be suitable, not sand, it's to be like rock or something like that, so the population can keep moving forward. Now, here's another little video. Let's see if we can get this guy going. They are amazingly mobile, some of these. This is a, a really large Chironex. Look what it's got in its stomach, okay? It's, so, like, this thing's about this sort of size, and it's stung, stung a large fish. Okay, the point is, they're incredibly mobile. And what we do is we can find they can dodge objects. These are, are night cameras we set out to detect them. And you can see this guy's steering around an obstacle, even at night. And so the obvious thing to do is to try some jellyfish speed trials. Um, so... Here is a, um, a PhD student of mine, Jody, and what we did is we went up to uh, north of Weeper, which is always great to have a crocodiles at the same time, and here's some of the speeds of these animals, like under 77 centimetres and 7 to 11 centimetres. So these characters, on average, are doing something like, you know, 3 to 4 metres per minute. So they're steaming along the place quite nicely. Data by Jamie Seymour with tagged ones, moving a few kilometres up and down the coast but where are they actually going? What we now find is that in places like estuaries, the connectivity to other places is actually quite restricted. And here's a little model that we're running. Can we just start that one as well? Where what we did is um, model the movements of jellyfish in this Port Musgrave. And what you find is that many of these estuaries is that even after days and days as a passive particle, it's really hard to get out. So the take-home message for Sydney is that a lot of these jellyfish aren't going to come roaring down the coast. 
A lot of them are in these places like estuaries where they tend to remain quite, quite enclosed. In this particular case, after days and days and days, these particles barely actually left the estuary. When you add behaviour on there, like their ability to stay close to shore, it's even less likely they'll move out. That's also true of some island populations. This is an island off uh, Townsville. So we have uh, Horseshoe Bay here, where we know this is where the polyps are. You only get babies in this bay. The big jellyfish tend to have a wee paddle around the island, but we don't actually think they make it to the mainland, because we can tell that from isotopic signatures and also genes, that this population seems to be quite self-contained. So these guys are not setting their sights on Sydney Harbour Bridge and roaring down the coast towards us. So, what should we worry about? These are the types of things that are going to control the population spread of them. First of all, the ability to create a new population depends on these types of things. Is that they, they've got their population here, it's recruitment and growth into that population, reproduction, asexual reproduction, but often what we're finding is these populations are quite constrained. Even if jellyfish do start coming down the coast, they have to find suitable um, polyp habitat. It's really hard to go around Fraser Island, because Fraser Island's pretty much all sand, okay? So there's very little polyp habitat there. So I actually think we're in a position of being reasonably secure not to worry too much uh, in the near future. So how do we manage these things? What are some of our options? I think Probably one of the biggest things is what we can do is monitoring to see... I mean, let's let Brisbane worry about this first before we worry about Sydney, but we're doing things like setting light traps for these jellyfish. So what you can do, because they're attracted to light, you can actually have imagery all night long and actually take sequential photographs to see if they're around, even GoPros and such like underwater to detect what's going on. And often with the collaboration of Surf Life Saving, we can take net hauls to actually find out what's going on. So look... In summary, there's a whole bunch of Irukandji jellyfish up around the Sundays. I think at least in our lifetime is that it's highly unlikely we're going to be invaded by Irukandji, even if the temperatures warm quite a bit, because it's a combination of the physical environment, like how the salinity of the water column, and also their ability to disperse. And surprise, surprise, these animals tend to like staying at home rather than going on long-distance travels like uh, teenagers do overseas. Okay. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. I think some people will be very uh, delighted to hear the positive um, outcome from that. Brisbane, but not Sydney, so we're okay. <laughs> anyway, um, it's my pleasure to, <laughs> to invite uh, Jude uh, Phillips to, uh, to close uh, this part of the presentation. Jude is a social anthropologist. She's uh, the senior curator at the Maclay Museum. This is a museum at the University of Sydney with a long and illustrious history. It's very important in, um, in zoology in Australia. And uh, when uh, Jude was uh, doing her research, she um, could choose between Cambridge and the Torres Strait. She went and she was advised the Torres Strait had very interesting jellyfish. So I think even though she doesn't... Um, is, hasn't worked on jellyfish a lot. She says she has a great appreciation for our spineless friends. Thanks, Jude. <laughs> What's not to love? Spineless and brainless. That's what I feel like many days. Um, so this is one of the, probably a really early photograph of jellyfish, and it's one of the few ways that 
before about 1940, you could see them, you could study them, you could learn about them in this kind of setting. And as all of the talks have shown, this is the way we now know jellyfish. We know them through photography more than almost anything else. Um, the other way, of course, is by sensation. And like everyone, um, I was talking to my partner, who's also from Limerick. Um, we have quite an Irish contingent <laughs> in our talks. And um, for me, my memories in Sydney are walking along the beach as a girl and wanting to go in the water and not being able to because wretched blue bottles were everywhere or, you know, there was the squishy, nasty ones and they just looked like this one on the... Um, here, just a, a blob, a nothing. And this is also the problem that faced many historical biologists in the past because this is all you could get to study. This, on the other hand, is how my husband saw jellyfish because he sat in crayfish boats waiting hours and hours and hours to, um, for the crayfish to eat the horrible, stinking fish that he'd put in the bait. And they would loop past in this beautiful, as beautiful, elegant way of swimming. And it was this really different way of seeing our environment, seeing how we relate to jellyfish, which comes from our interactions with the marine world and really, I think, styles how we think about danger, beauty, wonder and all of those sorts of things. But for most people in museums and including the, um, one of the beginners of the Maclay Museum, William John Maclay, this is all you could get from the water. A sludgy slop and the bottom of a jar which you really couldn't study at all because its anatomy had really more or less dissolved by the time you got it back to where you were. So for us to get to here, um, I'm just going to talk about a series of men um, who had a great influence on just being able to study jellyfish, let alone um, the rest of us. All of these people also have a huge influence in us learning about biology. They're all public educators in really strong ways and fought throughout their lives to make sure that biology itself was one of the mainstays of our education because without it we did not know the world that we lived in and we could not progress in that great 19th century sense of going forward. So you have the very beautiful um, Thomas Huxley on his way out on the rattlesnake in 1846 to study um, jellyfish in the waters at the top of Cape York, much where Mike was just talking about. Um, and for him, it was the ability sitting on a boat to pull out all of the different life stages of jellyfish that made it possible to do his work. Before then, you had illustrations, they were great, sludges in bottles from which people had done microscopic examination, which were no use because you couldn't tell which were the juveniles, which were the um, teenagers, which were the adults, which are the male-female of the adult stage at least, and how they could possibly form and how you would be able to tell one jellyfish apart from another if you couldn't even distinguish the two different life stages of a single species. This Fellow is, is possibly less known, um, but if you've ever been to an aquarium, he's one of the reasons why you have. He, in the 1850s, um, was a, really engrossed with the marine world of Britain. He walked around, he drew, he illustrated, he caught things, he wrote books about the wonder that you could see on the coasts of Britain. And he also wanted to bring that into the main popular centres, so he studied and worked on this 
bizarre as you will see, little fountain system, which solved the problem of being able to keep coral species and things like jellyfish alive for long enough to both be able to study them moving, the same thing Huxley was trying to get to, but also to be able to entertain and really bring to a world of city dwellers the wonders of the marine world. And then these are the two least known, probably unless there are some people who are artists or who um, like Harvard museums. Um, Leopold and Rudolf Blasker, they were glass makers from what is now Czechoslovakia. And going from the work of people like Goss and Huxley and Haeckel, who were brilliant illustrators, who learned their techniques in biology through learning really well how to illustrate and draw with great accuracy. They could make glorious representations, truly glorious representations, of the most bizarre-looking animals that had yet come to their imagination. So this is one of um, Goss's illustrations. Um, he named it and then Haeckel renamed it into its proper um, groupings. This is Goss's um, solution to aquarium. It's um, the only surviving one is in the Horniman Museum. Darwin went to Goss to have an aquarium built when he needed to study some marine organisms in his nice home. Um, the International Exhibition in London, Crystal Palace, got Goss to make them a big aquarium so that they could show people um, corals and other things. And it is the colour. It's not the, the black and white world of the illustrated book. It is this glorious colour of the marine world that they were really looking at. And if you think also that everyone here has the advantage of scuba diving, something that only came up in the late 60s, 70s, this deep water excitement of colour is not something that was frequently seen by most people, except with boxes where you could look into the water from its surface. So here's um, Huxley and his um, charming illustrator that he was. This is one of his many little cartoons that he did to his um, future wife who he was pining for when he was up in um, the Torres Strait. Um, and Huxley writes in this paper on the affinities, um, perhaps no class of animals has been so much investigated with so little satisfactory and comprehensive result as the family of Medusae. From the time of Perron and Le Sieur downwards, much has been said of the difficulties of attending the examination of them. I confess I think that they have been greatly exaggerated, at least with a good microscope, and he's using one that's this big, as you can see, it's a tiny little thing, um, and good light, with the ship tolerably steady, I never failed in procuring all the information I required. The great matter is to obtain a good successive supply of specimens, as the more delicate oceanic species are usually unfit for examination within a few hours after they are taken. So one of the other things that is building up around this 1850s time is the need to be in the field, to not just be able to publicly educate and send back the information and the knowledge that you've gleaned, but to be accurately looking into the waters and understanding what is happening at that moment in time, which is partly also what you're hearing tonight has continued to be a contribution. So this um, paper actually, this jellyfish made Huxley. It was when he um, met another one of the founders of my museum, William Sharp Maclay, in Sydney, and William Sharp had very good entrees into the Zoological Societies of London. He got his paper on Medusae accepted. Um, he lent him his library so he could study recent papers by others who were writing. 
um, in France and in German um, about this particular organism and by the time he went back to London he had started to get jobs and to be able to leave his life of an assistant surgeon on very uncomfortable ships and become one of the foremost biologists of our time and father of two um, or three very highly literate characters who leave biology and go into more um, other ways of thinking about the biological world. These are Blaschkas. These are really stunning when you think this is glass. This is such an amazing way of describing and illustrating what is so beautiful about these kinds of creatures in just just admiring their structure, just admiring what they look like and what they can do. This is another one. It sort of gives you a sense of the height of them. And the Blaschkas were um, courted, if you like, by many different museums and institutions in order to be able to have really good teaching models to teach um, big audiences for people about the basic structures and anatomy of these sorts of um, animals. And they are from the illustrations of Huxley and Haeckel and Goss. They are using the best of science to be able to recreate them in these amazing glass forms. But I've also got up the Aquaria vitrina because I couldn't find an Aquaria uh, Victoria, which is the next thing I'm leaping onto um, bravely, I guess, um, which is jellyfish when they're behaving at their best in some ways. So this particular kind of jellyfish um, has something to do with this green light in that it became the animal, and I need to find my notes of the people, who Martin Chalfie, Asamu Shimamura and Roger Tsin between 1992 and 2008 received three Nobel Prizes for, one Nobel Prize each, because that kind of jellyfish is um, the root of green phosphorescent protein which once it was by these very different studies that happened over the course of 10 years, I recognised, isolated and synthetically reproduced is the reason why you can have your brain understood while it is still thinking. The reason why if you have a cancer growing in your lung, you can get someone to put a, a small bit of phosphorescent jellyfish into your tissues and watch it as it lives and as it moves between the cancer cells. This animal allows us to see the living body in ways that we've never seen it before. Already it's starting to be eclipsed. But jellyfish and then after jellyfish, certain kinds of closely related corals, people started to synthesise the colours, um, the phosphorescent abilities of these animals. Um, which need only oxygen to be able to become fluorescent. That same thing that Blaschka captured in his glass, the same qualities that Huxley vaguely saw through his little glass box um, but didn't really approach in his anatomy paper. This, in our lifetimes, has changed enormously and overwhelmingly how we understand the human body, the animal body, biological organisms, and their interactions within the skin. I will leave you with the water. <laughs> <laughs>